A Time magazine article written some time ago, um, the author wrote this article, and in the article he spoke to a view that is quite prevalent even in our own time uh, today as I'm standing here. In trying to get a handle, this author, on Jesus and exactly who Jesus is. By the way, can I just tell you, if you ever try and get your theology and your view of Jesus from a Time magazine article, don't. All right, that's, that's the first thing I want to tell you this morning. Don't do that. But as he's trying to get a handle on Jesus, the writer wrote these words. And he was speaking specifically about the resurrection, which we'll talk about this morning. The writer said, Jesus Christ is risen or resurrected merely in the sense that his teachings live on. I mean, it's sort of like any other influential historical figure that has had an important impact on humanity. They are risen or they are alive in the sense that we still read their stuff and we still marvel at their lives. And believe it or not, there are a high majority of people who still feel that way about Jesus. For everything that he is or everything that we might believe that Jesus is, many people would say, you know what, he's... He's not really alive, but he's only alive in the sense that, yes, we still have, you know, his teachings and his morality and all of those things. And this morning, I, I want to just kind of speak into that because whether we believe it or not, like I said, that idea is still very prevalent in our world today that Jesus is just a good man or a teacher or some sort of a prophet in fact, I found a study uh, that was done by Barna, and I don't know if you'll be able to read every bit of this, and I don't want to go through every uh, bit of it, but the title on it says, Jesus, is he man, myth, or God? Now, a high majority of people in America, 93% based on this study in 2017, say almost all Americans believe Jesus Christ was a real person who actually lived. 93% of people at that time would say that. Nearly two-thirds of Americans say they have made a commitment to Jesus that's still important in their lives today, 63%. That's a pretty high percentage. Then we come down here to the bottom, and these are very interesting things. 43% of people say that he was God living among humans. You see how we're steeply declining as the stakes get higher. 31% say that he was uniquely called to reveal God's purpose in the world. 9% say that he embodied the best that is possible in each person. Isn't that just like a line of our times, right? He embodied the best that's possible in each... What does that even mean? 8% that he was a great man, a great teacher, but he was not divine. And then up here at the top... Right, uh, there is a little word diagram of the, the words that were used to describe Jesus evidently in the study, and you can see the ones that are most prominent because they are larger, and I just want to read these to you. That Jesus is accepting. Jesus is brave. That Jesus is warm. That Jesus is strong. And this last one makes me laugh a whole lot. That Jesus was practical. Uh, of all the things that I could think about Jesus, that might be one of the last things that I would probably ever say about Jesus. There was nothing about Jesus that was practical. But those words just kind of floor me a little bit, and they really miss the essence of where we're going this morning, what we are going to affirm this morning, what I hope that you will be able to... Again, this, this morning is not to reveal to you that something that's very, very new but it's to instill in you and to affirm and remind you why it's so important. 
and what Scripture says about it. We spent our time in Bible study this morning dwelling on what we'll dwell on here, that Jesus is the Son of God. And not just the Son of God, but He is God Himself. This morning we looked at some questions. That, did Jesus really believe that He was God? He did. I'm just, that, that, that was the Bible study this morning. And for everybody that was there, I was like, why didn't you just say that and move on? Jesus said it. Other people believed that Jesus was claiming that, specifically religious leaders, and most importantly, the Father affirms that in Jesus' life. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. And so this morning what I wanted to look at is, did the disciples really believe that Jesus was who He said He was? Guys, it should come as no surprise to us that people for centuries, and, and probably as soon as Jesus completed his ministry here on this earth, people have been trying to chip away at the cornerstone and the foundation of the Christian faith as they attempt to explain away the history-shifting, life-changing truth of Jesus' resurrection and who he was. And again, while many will submit that possibly Jesus is risen or that he lives on because we read his sayings and his teachings or we follow his morality or we, we live by his pithy statements, come on, people. Jesus is not a creed. Jesus is not some concept. He is as real as me standing here talking you, to you today, this morning. He is alive today and forevermore. And he most certainly didn't come to merely give good teachings or merely show us the moral and pure way. Guys, he came to give a life. So we talked about last week, but this morning I want to push beyond even that to a truth that is just as foundational and just as necessary for us to grow in our knowledge and our faith in Jesus. It's the revelation, and it is a revelation, by the way, and we're going to see that in the story this morning, a, the revelation that Jesus is and evermore will be the Son of God. And again, to begin our time this morning, before we turn our attention to John chapter 20 in our main text, I want to consider another moment in Jesus' ministry. Last week during our Bible study time, Brian was teaching, and he brought up one of the central moments in Jesus' entire ministry, and we find it in Matthew chapter 16. In this scene, Jesus and his boys are in the heart of pagan territory and false god worship. Caesarea Philippi is where they find themselves. And it's there that Jesus asks what's in my mind it wasn't just then, but it still remains today the most foundational question for any person's life. And here's how it goes, starting at verse 13 of Matthew chapter 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say that you're John the Baptist, some say that you're Elijah, others say that Jeremiah or one of the other prophets, but then he stops them and he says, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm asking you, who do you say that I am? And one of the great confessions of the church, in fact, I believe what Jesus is saying after this, the confession that the church will be built on, Simon says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now, it's important to gain a bit of understanding in all the ways that Jesus identified throughout his ministry. First is his given earthly name, Jesus. 
Yeshua is the Hebrew there. God saves. Then there is the role that Jesus has in God's salvation plan. The words Christ and Messiah are used interchangeably. Messiah is the Hebrew counterpart to the Greek. The Hebrew word there is Mashiach. The Greek of that is Christos. And then there is what we'll talk about this morning, his title and his position, Son of God. God himself. And this is what Peter affirms here in Matthew chapter 16 in a very shocking and groundbreaking moment. Peter will again affirm his belief towards the end of Jesus' ministry. And in John chapter 6, after being abandoned by almost all of his disciples, Jesus looks at the guys and he says this towards the end of John chapter 6. Jesus turned to the 12 disciples and he asked, are you also going to leave and desert me? And listen to what Simon Peter says again. For all of Simon's idiosyncrasies and his flaws and his faults, he gets some things right. Peter replies, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. We believe. Now listen to this. Not just I believe, but he's speaking on behalf of the disciples. So there's some level of belief. We believe and we know that you are the Holy One or the Son of God. And here's an honest admission. As I sat in my office this week, studying and thinking about this concept of Jesus as the Son of God, I most of us, many of us in this room have already arrived at this conclusion. I told you it's not new. It's not a new revelation. It's not rocket science. Many of us already know and believe the truth that Peter and the disciples had arrived to. And so as I thought about that, what's so important, what is so critical about this very core doctrine and I really wrestled with the, the value of teaching a doctrine and a concept that many people already grasp. And then I came in, and I believe it was Wednesday morning, and I sat down at my desk, and I opened up my computer, and the very first line that I read that day is, I'm wrestling with this. Like, I'm telling people something that they already know, which, by the way, I should think that anyway. It's like every time I come to preach, I'm like, many people probably already know this. I read this line, ironically, but not coincidentally. This is the first thing that I read that morning. in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. If Jesus isn't God, there is no hope for sinners. I thought, okay, God, I get it. So here we go. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 19, if our hope in Christ is only for this life, then we are to be more pitied than anyone in this world. A well-known and long-repeated confession of the church found in what is called the Heidelberg Catechism says this, It is necessary for God and man to meet in Jesus, that he might, by the power of his godness, or the Godhead, sustain in his human nature the burden of God's wrath, and might obtain for us and restore to us righteousness and life. 
So as much as we talked last week that it was necessary for God to take on flesh in the person of Jesus and become like one of us, and he did that, it is equally necessary for Jesus to be God, to hold with him the power and the authority to forgive and fully atone for our sins and begin setting things back into order. Guys, no mere and only man can do that. But some people might ask, you know, Ryan, if it's, if it's so important to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, why didn't Jesus just spell that out very, very obviously and say, I'm God? Now, again, I wish that some of you would have been able to be at Bible study this morning because we worked through that. Why Jesus doesn't do that? Aside from it not being Jesus' style to just out and out say those words... Or it was not even his intent and purpose. There's probably no way that I can fully answer that question in a satisfactory way. But guys, I'm telling you, study the scriptures for yourself and what we'll talk about this morning, that Jesus was clearly God himself, cannot be denied. Guys, even if Jesus never said the precise words, I am the Son of God, there are far too many instances where people affirm it to deny it. And though Jesus never says, I am God, in so many words, in that exact phrase, he unmistakably identifies himself as God in astounding ways and makes it apparent that it's only the bringing together of his godness and his humanity that he was able to do what he needed to do to reconcile us and to bring us back to God, to restore to us righteousness and to give us everlasting life. When Jesus came to this earth, he brought his divinity with him. I don't want you to be mistaken about that. He was 100% God and he was 100% human. Try to wrap your mind around that and explain that. I don't know. But it is the truth. He brings divinity with him when he comes to this earth and he puts on flesh. But he chooses to, and this is the miracle of all miracles, he chooses to veil that deity, that godness, instead of leveraging it. Philippians chapter 2 talks about that. He did not consider it something that he needed to grasp and hold on to, but he veiled it, it says. Guys, the miracle is not that Jesus is the God-man, but that he spent so much of his time on earth having to hide his godness or veil his godness. People got inklings and glimpses of that, the greatest of them being the transfiguration where three guys get to see the full glory of God. The fact that he had to veil that his whole time on earth is astounding to me. And while Jesus doesn't blatantly out himself as often as many would like, his, his silence and his lack of denying the truth of his godness is, is just as telling. In Mark chapter 14, verses 61 through 63, he says this, or this is what happens. Jesus was silent. This is when he's been betrayed and he's arrested and he's put on trial. He was silent and he made no reply. Then the high priest asked Jesus, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And then Jesus says the famous words, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothing to show his horror and said, why do we need any other witnesses? You've all heard his blasphemy. What is your verdict? Jesus never said the phrase, I am the son of God. But he said, I, I am. 
a direct allusion to God himself from Exodus chapter 3. During the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, the Nicene Creed was drafted uh, and they used it to fight against some of the early heresies of the church. And part of that Nicene Creed says this and states this about Jesus' deity, that he was God from God, light from light, true God from true God. It's a beautiful words to affirm the deity of Jesus. And nowhere is this more clearly affirmed than in the Gospel of John. Nowhere do the humanity and the deity of Jesus meet in a more obvious and overt way than in John's eyewitness account of Jesus' life and ministry. And the Gospel of John is very unique. It differs from the other three Gospels in that it emphasizes very, very clearly the deity of Jesus. I guess you would say that as John seeks to make crystal clear in his Gospel account, and certainly the text we will work from today, as well as all the creeds and confessions of the early church today, this is what I would say about Jesus, that Jesus is God's best sermon. You want to to hear from God? You want to know God? Look to Jesus. You want to hear the best sermon that's ever been preached? Jesus came into this world and took on flesh to become like one of us and to die for us and to raise to life and to be ascended at the right hand of the Father. That's a pretty good sermon. Jesus is God's best sermon. And in one of the clearest and most breathtaking moments in all of the Gospels, if not the whole Bible, we have the clearest confession of Jesus' Godness and the affirmation of the story that God has been telling from the beginning of time. John chapter 20 says, Just after the resurrection, Jesus has appeared to Mary Magdalene, and now he will appear to ten of the disciples. One of them, unfortunately, we know what happened to him, and Thomas is nowhere to be found. Somebody said, I guess Thomas was out getting Starbucks for everybody. I really don't know what he was doing that day. That Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors. Catch this, by the way. Imagine this scene. Because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. And suddenly, Jesus was just standing there among them. Doors locked, closed, shut tight, and Jesus... I don't know. I I, I have to say this. I I don't think Jesus was a show-off. But if ever there was a moment where Jesus was trying to show off, this was it. It's like, you want to see what a resurrected body can do, boys and girls? Here I am. A few months later, way across town, there I am. I think he's just playing with people's minds. As he stood there among them, he said these words, peace be with you. Yeah, it's easy for you to say, Jesus, that door's locked and you weren't here and now you're here and I'm supposed to be peaceful. So as he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and in his side and they were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Again, he said, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. And then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, I don't want to insult anybody's intelligence in here. I'm sure that the resurrection and the basics of the resurrection are something that I'm guessing many, if not most, all of us have heard about since we were kids. Maybe not. Maybe there are some people in here that are like, not me, man. I didn't hear that. And I think what happens for most of us who grew up in church and as kids, we hear every single year at Easter time, the resurrection. And we preach throughout the year about the resurrection. That the resurrection is just 
something that we've heard. That it's just something that we believe in. Oh yeah, like, you know, Jesus rose from the dead. That happens every single day. Imagine you're sitting here today and one of your loved ones that you've lost, a best friend that you've lost, suddenly walks in through those doors to the back and sits next to you. In addition to completely freaking you out, you wouldn't know what to do with yourself. That's not something that happens every day. Guys, we often fail to recognize what a, what a shock, what a cataclysmic shock to hear, let alone see somebody who had once been dead be alive right in front of you as Jesus is with the disciples. We can't comprehend that. Someone has said it this way. We who read the Gospels from the other side of Easter, who have the day printed on our calendars, forget how hard it was for the disciples to believe. In itself, the empty tomb did not convince them. That only demonstrated that he's not there. Not that he is risen. Convincing these skeptics would require intimate, personal encounters with the one who had been their master for three years. And over the next six weeks after Jesus raises from the dead, he will provide exactly that for his followers. And one of those disciples in particular found it really hard to believe. More specifically, as we're going to read a text here in just a minute, he absolutely refused to believe. He suspended belief until a few things were cleaned up. Continuing on here, verses 24 and 25, one of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin or Didymus, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, we have seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it. I'm not going to believe it. Don't you have me try to believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands and put my fingers into them and place my hand into the wound in his side. You guys know anybody like Thomas? Like Thomas in the Bible is, is sort of a downer. It's like the guy that rains on everybody's parade. He's always singing in a minor key. He sees the dark side of life and everything. And we all know people like that, don't we, unfortunately? Every time a person like that is given a situation, they always see the dark side, the bad side of it. They imagine all the things that can go wrong in that situation. That's Thomas. He's the downer of this story. For eight days, it says, imagine this, over and over and over again. There's Thomas sitting over in the corner going, I still haven't seen him. Not going to believe it. Don't matter what you guys say. I'm not going to believe. Eight days of this, guys. You guys say that you've seen him, but I still haven't seen him. Show up. Thomas steadfastly refused to believe unless these conditions were met. I see the wounds in his hand and his side. He was not given to half unbelief or half faith. By the way, do you ever have those moments in life where you say something and immediately after it comes out of your mouth, you're like, darn, I really regret that. Like you say something really stupid and you feel mortified. Now here's the deal. Let me, let me play this out for you. You may have done that in your life, but eventually given time, most everybody will forget about that. You won't probably, but most everybody else will forget about that. What Thomas does in this moment is probably like you should put this on the top 10 Things I regret saying list. 
And, and, and nobody forgot about it. In fact, for 2000, over 2,000 years now, it's documented in the Bible and people read about it. I don't even want to hear about your greatest regret and the thing that you've said. It can't be worse than this. I believe, though, guys, that Thomas really gets a bad rap way too often. What do we usually think of when we say the name Thomas in the Bible? What? The doubting Thomas. It's a phrase that we use for people even today. You're just the doubting Thomas. Doubt, doubt, doubt. But you know what? As I read and as I've read this week, I'm not really sure that's what clearly defines Thomas. I actually feel that Thomas was a really dogged and determined believer, but he just needed space and time to flesh out his beliefs. Thomas is also the same guy when Jesus says, hey guys, we're going to Jerusalem, and when we go to Jerusalem, I must die. Who pipes up and says these words? Then we will go with you, and we will also die. Thomas. I don't think he was a doubter. I just think he was a very committed man, and if he was going to believe, he was going to make sure that he was all the way in in his belief. But boy, when he did believe, watch out. Verses 26 through 29. Eight days later, eight days of Thomas going, I won't believe, I won't believe. Don't care what you guys said, I won't believe. The disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. And the doors were locked again, and suddenly, Jesus was standing among them. And he says the very same phrase, peace be with you. And then he, could you imagine this moment, by the way? I'm not going to believe. I don't believe it. I can't believe it. I I refuse to believe it. Jesus looks Thomas right dead in the eyes. Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand in the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. How in the world does Jesus know that Thomas even said those exact words? He was not in that room when Thomas said those words. It's the all-knowingness of Jesus, especially in his post-resurrection body and self. And then Thomas says, what is in my mind one of the greatest, shortest, most powerful statements in all of the Gospels. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. That's it. In the English Bible, one, two, three, four, Five words. And it's such a powerful confession of who Jesus is. Then Jesus told him, and he told the disciples, and he told all those who would read this situation after the fact, you believe, Thomas, because you have seen me. Blessed. Really, truly blessed. It's the same word that Jesus would use in the Beatitudes. Blessed are those. Blessed are you. Blessed are you. Makarios is the Greek word. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. Jesus appears to the disciples one time, and Jesus appears the second time to the disciples, and when he does it, it is both highly practical and very personal. Thomas was not there the first time we read. For whatever reason... And so he appears again with Thomas in attendance. And now on one level, this is very important. On a very practical level, it's important because all of them have been commissioned to be apostles. And to be an apostle, one of the first things that had to be true of you is that you had to be a direct eyewitness to the validity of the resurrection. So imagine if Thomas never gets to see Jesus. If Thomas is always gone when Jesus shows up 
In that sense, very practically, Thomas has to see a resurrected Christ to be commissioned and to go out as an apostle of Jesus Christ. But this moment here in John chapter 20 is also intensely personal. Because Jesus wants Thomas's lasting legacy to be one of belief. Like, I really don't believe that, like, John writes this just to get a dig at his friend Thomas. Like, I want people for the rest of time to really see Thomas and just be like, oh, Thomas. I think Jesus wants that more than that for Thomas as well. It's almost as if to Jesus, he and Thomas are the only ones in that room. And as Jesus gives Thomas the space and the opportunity to come to terms with the shock and the awe of the resurrection, what does Thomas say in full confession? My Lord and my God. Guys, Thomas is the first and the only person to look Jesus of Nazareth straight in the face and attach the word God to him. Significantly, the original translation of this is the Lord of me and the God of me. There's definiteness to who this man is. Not just a son of God, not just any old guy, not just a teacher, not just a prophet. The Lord. The God. And this is exactly, guys, what John has been making the case for from the very beginning of his gospel. You will remember in the very beginning, John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was what? God. The Word is Jesus, and Jesus is God, is what John is saying. What does that mean? What does that look like in real time? And to that, John says, boys and girls, it looks like this. And he proceeds to take us through the bends and turns of Galilee and Jerusalem, through the cross and the tomb, and to this moment where a determined disciple, in his unbelief, is melted by the overwhelming love and peace of a risen Christ and the Son of God. I mean, look at this, guys. Look how far Thomas seemingly was away from God and how far he goes in just an instant. That's how it can be. Now, it's not always that way with people, but it can be that way today. When you really see Jesus for who he is, all of who he is, things change. Thomas doesn't settle for belief. He says, my Lord and my, my God. That is, I am looking at my, my Lord, my Master, and I'm looking at my God. That's a belief in Jesus and God and Jesus as God and His deity. Guys, there is no greater or higher profession of faith. I guess you could argue maybe in Matthew 16 when, when Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is right there with it, but... This, there's no higher professions of faith in all the gospel than we have right here on the lips of Thomas. It's what Jesus has been trying to get across and what John has been trying to get across for all of the book of John. Day after day after day of sitting there saying, I will not believe, and Jesus suddenly shows up and in a moment, Thomas is now faced with the evidence of what he saw and it changed him forever. Someone has said it this way. This is such a great characterization of Thomas. Thomas began that evening as Eeyore, but he ended the evening 
as Tigger, full of joy, with a bounce in his step and a spring in his heart. He started an evening as a skeptic, as a hardened skeptic, but he ended sunny side up, all because of the realization, not that just Jesus was alive, but that Jesus was God in flesh. You guys, let me tell you something, something that will bring great comfort to many and should bring it to all of us. Guys, it is, I think this story here in John 20 is all about, it's not where you start, but it's often where you end up in your faith. I don't know where you are in your faith as you sit here this morning. If you're super strong, you're super sure of everything, or you've come in here this morning and you are shaky at best. It's not where you start. It's not how you came in here this morning. It's where you end up. Now, we, we don't arrive somewhere or anywhere haphazardly. But my point is, you don't have to stay where you started or where you are right now. There is hope that you can end up and you can be placed in the right spot by the grace of God and the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done. Thomas makes an immediate transition from declared unbelief to radical belief. He addresses Jesus with the titles of, of deity, calling him Lord and God. We talked about Lord a couple of weeks ago and how that is always attributed to God by the time of the New Testament. And you know what's really significant to me, and you may be tempted to overlook this, and you may be completely overlook this. It's so significant that Jesus accepted these titles that Thomas says. You don't notice this, right? When, when Thomas says, my Lord and my God, Jesus says, well, don't, don't call me that. No, he accepts these titles that Thomas is giving to him. John understood that faith in Jesus as Messiah and as God has value just beyond recognition of that truth. It, it carries the promise, and a line that John uses often in his gospel is that you would have life in his name. Guys, it is my assumption, and this is an assumption, but I believe it's a pretty strong one, that John highlights this story and he puts it at the end of this gospel. And it really, truly, in the original translations and in the early manuscripts, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31 is the end of the gospel. The other stuff you see in 21 is an epilogue that was added later. It doesn't mean it's any less true. But this really is the last thing that we get in the original book of John, the earliest manuscripts. There's a reason, and my assumption is this. Number one, Thomas's fail is so incredibly great. I mean, would you not agree with me? Like, you read that story, and you're just like, oh, gosh, my heart hurts for you, Thomas. That is such a bad fail. But more importantly, and the second thing of my assumption is that as great as Thomas's fail is, his confession is even greater. It encapsulates the heart of what John has been trying to get at in his entire gospel account. And he says that very boldly and very clearly in verses 30 and 31 of chapter 20. John says, the disciples, I myself, saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones that are recorded in this book. Isn't that crazy, by the way? You're like, That's a, he did a lot of stuff in the gospels, a lot of miracles. That wasn't his purpose, but he did a lot of crazy stuff. And you're telling me there's more? There's more that's not written in here? But these are written. I, John, have chosen to document these very things here so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing him, you will have life by the power of his name. 
So is Jesus God and how can you know that for sure? Guys, I do not have the time right now to exhaust the abundant amount of scriptures that begin to affirm his being God. You do not have the stamina to sit through all of those scriptures that I would have to read. But like I said at the beginning, I really, really hope and encourage you, take home that paper and that resource with you and just read all of the scriptures that talk about Jesus being God. What I will do and what I will give you is something that I consider to just whet the appetite, to make you want to search the scriptures and to know Jesus and God more. Josh McDowell is an apologist and he wrote a book called A Ready Defense and in that book he says this. Jesus' distinct claims of being God eliminate the popular tactic of skeptics who regard him as just a good moral man or a prophet who said a lot of profound things. So, so often that conclusion is passed off as the only one acceptable to scholars or the obvious result of the intellectual process. Guys, you will find people, many people who say, if you are a really, really smart individual, you could never come to that conclusion that Jesus is the Son of God. I am here to tell you the direct opposite of that. Only a fool would read and study these scriptures and not come to the conclusion that Jesus is the Son of God. There's nothing intellectual about going against that. There's nothing smart or profound about going against that. He continues and says, the trouble is many people nod their heads in agreement and never see the falseness of such reasoning. Guys, really there are only three options when it comes to Jesus claiming to be God. Either what Jesus said wasn't true and he knew it, making him a liar. What he said wasn't true and he didn't know it and that would make him delusional. Or what he said was true, making him the Lord of the universe. McDowell continues, if Jesus knew that he was not God, then he was lying and deliberately deceiving his followers. But if he was a liar, then he was also a hypocrite because he told others to live with integrity while he lived a colossal lie. He was a demon because he told others to trust him for their eternal destiny. If he couldn't back up his claims and he knew that he couldn't do that, then he was unspeakably evil. But more than anything, he would be a fool because it was his claims about himself of being God that led to his crucifixion. It is inconceivable for Jesus to be a liar. Then couldn't he actually have thought himself to be God but have been mistaken? After all, it's possible to be both sincere and wrong. But we must remember that for someone to think himself God, especially in a fiercely monotheistic culture, and then to tell others that their eternal destiny depended on believing in him is sheer lunacy. In Jesus, we don't observe the abnormalities or the imbalances that usually go along with psychological disorders. His poise and his composure would certainly be amazing if he were insane, as many people say that he was. And so here's what we arrive at, guys. If we cannot personally conclude that Jesus is a raging deceiver or a loon, the only other alternative is that he was the Christ, the Son of God, as he claimed. The overwhelming evidence is in Jesus Christ being Lord and God. And still, guys, some reject this truth today. 
Bill Bright, the founder of the ministry now known as Crew, said this, I have, I have yet to meet a man who has honestly considered the overwhelming evidence concerning Jesus of Nazareth who does not admit that he is the Son of God. See, that's the problem for people who say that there's no way that Jesus could be the Son of God. It's highly likely that they've never taken the time to actually research that and search the scriptures and to know whether that's true or not. And so I have to ask a question, and I think it's a fair question. Why, why is it so hard to believe sometimes, especially in this concept, in this truth that Jesus is the Son of God? How do we believe in the face of insurmountable odds and mounting questions? And Jesus gives an answer here in John chapter 20, but to be clear, it's not an explanation. Jesus doesn't give a really great PowerPoint presentation in that upper room. He gives a, a revelation. Guys, perhaps what too many of us really need in life are not better explanations of things about God and Jesus and the Spirit, but asking God humbly and sincerely to give you the right revelation. Maybe what the biggest thing that you could do walking out here today is that you would just walk and say a simple prayer, Lord, would you humble my heart and would you soften my heart to be sensitive to see who you really are? All of who you are. Someone has said it this way, our faith is not anchored in an explanation, but in an event. Notice that Jesus doesn't address with Thomas the ifs and the buts of his faith, but he confronts him directly with the reality and the truth of the resurrection. Look at my hands and look at my side. Guys, Christianity didn't believe with a bunch of people who believed something, but with people who saw something, and more importantly, who saw someone. Guys, what would happen if any of us and all of us really saw Jesus for everything that he was and most crucially the resurrected Savior that he is? Jesus didn't tell Thomas to believe just because his explanations were on point. Thomas didn't look at Jesus and be like, you know what, you are a very rational speaker. You are a very rational debater. He urged Thomas to believe and surrender because of the obvious reality of the resurrection standing right in front of them. But what about those who don't have the luxury of having Jesus right in front of them? Jesus addresses that, doesn't he? Verse 29, again, I want to read that. Jesus told him and the disciples, you, Thomas, believe because you have seen me, but blessed are those who believe without seeing me. Guys, there is an extra special happiness and grace for those of us who have not seen Jesus with our eyes, but we have believed in him in our hearts. That's faith. And faith is not what we see with our eyes, but what we believe through the truth of God's word and the faithful witness in the deepest parts of who we are. And I know that there is at least one of you out there, because I have said it myself, well, if I were Thomas and I got to see Jesus, I'd believe too, would you? Would you? Because it doesn't matter what you see. What matters most is you believe based on what Jesus says he is and who he says he is. Guys, if you cannot get to that, if you cannot get to the things that we have talked about this morning, nothing else will matter. It was not some new insight to the teaching of Jesus that transformed Thomas from a doubter to a martyr. It was the resurrection. And because of it, the belief that Jesus was and is today exactly who he says he is. 
Guys, the reason that we cannot turn Jesus into a mere teacher or a prophet or a good guy is that teaching alone is just about us. You understand that, right? When you receive teaching, it's about what what do I need to do? What do I need to do to get an A? What do I need to do to grasp this material? What do I need to do to prove to you that I get it? The gospel is not that at all. The gospel is not what do I need to do. The gospel is it is done for you. Here is what I have done for you, Jesus says. Only as Christ, the Son of God, do we get freed from teachings and morals and turn towards the answer to everything. The gospel through the death and the burial and the resurrection of the Son of God, Jesus Christ himself. Tim Keller says it this way, God cannot send just a man. He could not have sent just a man to this world because he would have eventually been blown off. Or he... He could have sent just a God who we would willfully rebel against as history is so clear to show. Just go look at the history of Israel. No, what we need and what we have received was a wounded God-man. The sight of divinity and godness at the feet of humanity in service. And guys, that's why it's so critically important to get Jesus' identity right. Because if we do not get the deity of Jesus, then we do not have the Father. And if we do not have the Father, then we do not have life. If we do not get the identity of Jesus right, nothing else in this life or the life to come will be right. The famous preacher Charles Spurgeon said it this way. Jesus did not come into there, the disciples' midst, nor did he come into this world to show them a new thought a philosophic discovery, or even a deep doctrine, or a profound mystery, or indeed anything but himself. And it's why the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Romans, would open up the letter. This is significant. Don't miss this and don't run by this. Romans chapter 1, verse 4, Paul says this. Starting actually at verse 3, the good news, the good news that I'm writing to you is about his son. In his earthly life, he was born into King David's family, and he was shown to be the son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then I love this line, he is Jesus Christ, our Lord. My encouragement to you today is that as you sit here, there's only ever really in a room two kinds of people. People who have come to Jesus and who have believed the things that we have been talking about the last few weeks, including today, and you have surrendered your life to Jesus, or you've not. Those are the only two options. My encouragement to those who have come to Jesus and have accepted Him as Lord and Savior, have been baptized into His name, is that you would really, really, the deepest parts of who you are, ask yourself the question, have I really seen Jesus? Have I really believed in the biblical, gospel-preaching, kingdom-introducing Jesus? 
And if not, what are we holding back for? What are, you, what are we waiting for? He is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. There's nothing else for us to look to in life. And if you sit here today and you have not chosen Christ and you are outside of Christ and you have not given your life to Christ, what are we waiting for? There is no other Savior. Try as you might a million things in this life, you will never find a Savior like Jesus. He is God. He is Christ the Messiah. And so this morning, as the band comes back up here and gets to, ready to lead us in one last song of worship, I would encourage you this morning, as I do so many times and have very, very pointedly in this series about Jesus, if you're hearing things from the Word of God that are causing you to ask questions and to think and to search and say to yourself, maybe there is more to this life than what I've been living, that you would come this morning and you would at least start a conversation to help you take that next step towards the most important decision you will ever make in your life for Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me this morning? Would you pray with me? Lord, I ask that right now, and specifically I would ask for the boldness for anybody in this room who needs prayer this morning, who needs for you to take their life over and to help them not to live just a a better life or a a good life or, or to live by your teachings, but to be captured and to be captivated by you, your heart, and the truth of who you are, Savior of the world, Son of God, that you would allow that person, you would allow those people to come today. Give them the boldness. Give them the strength. Move your spirit in this room this morning. Move your spirit in their lives at the deepest parts of who they are to come to you this morning. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.